Welcome to Process This, a podcast for the sterile processing community. The Healthcare Sterile Processing Association, HSPA, invites you to log on, listen and learn twice a month. Now it's time to process this with your host, clinical educator, John Wood. Welcome to the Process This Podcast. This is episode number 65. Well, thanks for joining me. As always, I hope that you are doing well. Today on the podcast, we are talking about issues in sterile processing that have gone public. Issues that either were picked up by the local news outlet or even made some national headlines. Some of these news stories didn't make the national news, so you may not even be aware of them. But I think it is important to be reminded about these issues so that we, as sterile processing professionals, that we don't make the same mistakes over and over again. Now I'm going to do my best to keep the facility's names out of these articles. I don't think it's really important. Um, Honestly, most of these facilities are self-reporting anyway. You know, they've said they had an issue. They took measures to correct the issue. Uh, In my personal opinion, just me talking, I think there are a lot of facilities that have these same issues. They're just not called out on it, right? Nobody knows about it. Nobody's gone public with the issue. But the issues still remain the same. So let's go ahead and get started. So today I'm going to talk about two different topics. Uh, One is facilities that have some kind of water issue going on. And then the topic of electrothermal injuries, or more commonly known as burns from surgery instrumentation. Uh, But first, let's start with the water. So uh, this first article is titled, Some Surgeries on Hold at This Medical Center Due to Water Safety Concerns possible contamination the hospital confirms. Now the news outlet reached out to the hospital after receiving several reports about this issue. Some patients complained that they were not notified of the cancellation of surgeries uh, until the night before it was to take place. So the hospital released the following statement. The hospital routinely tests deionized water used to wash disinfect instruments for some of our surgical procedures. Deionized water samples are collected and sent to a private contractor for out-of-state testing. Now this week one of the test results came back with a bacterial level uh, that was higher than normal. One sample was out of the normal range while the others were fine. A new sample of the water was taken and sent to uh, the lab for retesting and the results are expected at any time. The facility suspects that a water sample test from the surgical instrument cleaning area may have been contaminated due to some mailing issues. But, out of an abundance of caution, some surgeries at the facility were postponed and they have a very stringent cleaning. Okay, I'm going to stop right here. Now, this is interesting. All of you will identify this. This was probably the one, either the reporter was, you know, had no idea what they were talking about or the PR person who is explaining this story really didn't understand, but you're going to hear something funny here in just a second. 
and it says, We have a very stringent cleaning and sterilization process involving instruments being cleaned in a high heat sterilizer in addition to deionized water disinfecting. Okay, we, we know that, that high heat sterilizers or sterilizers don't clean and deionized water doesn't disinfect. So uh, just a little confusion on their part, I'm, I'm, I'm going to assume. But the article continues, the facility is doing all they can to confirm the safety of the water and will take action on the water safety results as necessary. The safety and well-being of our patients is top priority. Now the facility remains operational. Surgical procedures that utilizes disposable instruments are continuing. So it looks like they're taking the appropriate actions, right? Hopefully the water tests come back and they can resume operations. So it begs the question, do you have a process like this in your facility? Are you testing regularly? Do you know what your water quality is? What are your processes if you have issues with water? You know, they have a clearly defined process. Tests are sent out, they're retrieved, something came back negative, they retested, or positive if you will, they retested and are taking appropriate actions by canceling cases until the results come back, right? So uh, what are you doing in your facility? Now this next uh, article kind of has a story that comes with it. So uh, it's titled, they went to the hospital for help and the water sickened them. So it reads more than 150 hospitals across the country reported identifying at least one patient with a waterborne infection that can be deadly. Hospitals across the country have identified patients in their care that have been sickened or in some cases killed by a waterborne infection that came right out of the medical facility's faucets. If you can point a picture of Betty Sue, it would feature a trademark smile of an Indian trail mother and grandmother fueled over the 67 years by her two hearts. She was the nicest person I ever met in life. She became as close as a sister. She just had good charity in her heart and goodness. Sitting in her apartment on Tuesday morning, her and her husband shared some warm memories of their dear friend who they first met long before her heart transplant. They still struggled with the sad reality that Betty Sue is no longer around. That March marked the four years since she had passed away. Her death certificate identified the immediate cause of death as cardiogenic shock, which is, you know, when a person's heart suddenly stops, can't pump blood, enough, enough blood to meet the body's needs. Her death was kind of a real shocker for them because, you know, they thought things were going really well for her. You know, they were making plans. They were just shocked when her death came about. Four months before her death, she was living with a failing heart. Betty Sue turned to the world-renowned medical center in November for a heart transplant, according to the wrongful death lawsuit by the family. As friends and family members mourned her death, research showed that the university investigated a multi-year, multi-phase infection outbreak that would go on to affect hospital patients from a certain time period, all stemming from the hospital water. The research found most of the illnesses were confined to the hospital's new addition. Researchers concluded 
that routine care using tap water and unfiltered water in a medical device likely caused the outbreak of the illness that killed Betty Sue and 26 other patients. According to the research, researchers said patient room faucets, patient care ice machines, ICU hallway faucets, patient shower heads, utility water basins, operating room scrub sinks, all tested positive. And I would bet that the incoming water supply and sterile processing would have also tested positive. You know, these organisms often found in public water. They're generally not a threat to those patients who are healthy, but the experts in this research said they are increasingly dangerous for people with compromised immune systems and routinely cause serious infections in people who come in contact with the contaminated water source. They say that large hospital facilities which have complex water systems and vulnerable patients are especially challenging because they are a breeding ground for these microorganisms. Now the Department of Health and Environmental Control Outbreak After Action Report showed that four patients passed away at another hospital after 18 patients suffered surgical site infections. The report concluded that likely it was a result from tap water and contamination from instrumentation on the surgical field. Now this is a sad story because you know there's lots of people who lost their life uh, seemingly from a problem that can be corrected. Now I think this article emphasizes just the importance of a robust water quality program. You know if you don't know the TIR 34. If you've never looked at that, you know, from Amy, you know, the, the report deals with water. This report is being converted now into a standard. So along with the other standards, the SD79, the SD91, this water quality standard is another standard that you should have in your arsenal. Right? This should be another resource that you should implement in your facility. So look out for that standard. Uh, and make sure you get your hands on that one. Now, another story we have is hospital will soon resume surgeries postponed during water crisis, and it remained in a state of emergency because of fuel, some sort of fuel in the water supply. So they've canceled cases until further notice. I think kind of my question would be was, how would you know, right, if you're not doing any type of testing, how would you know that you have a problem until somebody else tells you, like the city? Uh, when would you be notified? Right? What, what effects would there be on instrumentation that was processed prior to that notification? And then what processes do you have in place if you had some sort of water quality issue, especially incoming water? What would you do? What would, you, what would your facility do? Have you thought about this? Um, good article. Uh, it doesn't really give us a whole lot more information than that, other than just questions. But here's another article. It says Medical Center delayed some elective surgeries due to water issues. Medical Center postponed procedures scheduled this week to conduct exhaustive water testing, but is expected to return to normal operations. Discolored water began impacting the hospital's operations, which resulted in 11 elective surgeries being rescheduled. Now, out of abundance of caution, some procedures were rescheduled to permit them to test the water supply prior to processing equipment for procedures. 
The water was tested after discoloration in the water, which they uh, assume was caused by a concentration of normal sediment running through the pipes. And this normal sediment and the issues revealed a failure in the water tank pump. Water testing is being performed as a precaution in, in accordance with the Amy uh, guidelines and standards, and the hospital will return to normal operations soon. The medical center is committed to providing safe, high-quality care, uh, and they say that they will always place care and well-being of patients above all else. So a good example of a facility, again, taking action. You know, water didn't visibly look right. Somebody identified an issue, put up some red flags, water was tested, surgeries canceled, problem was identified, and corrective action uh, was being taken. You know, again, they had a process in place, which is great. You know, it's a good example of, of you know, what you should do. Um, again, my question is, what, what would you do if you were in this situation? Do you have a process in place? What corrective actions are you taking? All right, now let's look at some electrothermal injuries. You know, we've identified water issues. Let's look at some issues from our laparoscopic procedures. So this first uh, little article says, an underreported complication of laparoscopic surgery. Electrothermal injuries have been estimated at one to five events per 1,000 cases. However, their true incidence is unknown and is likely unreported. Uh, the article goes on to say that most injuries are unrecognized at the time of occurrence and are only diagnosed postoperatively or even treated without determining the exact cause. In a survey of 506 attendees at the American College of Surgeons, 18% of surgeons reported that they had personally experienced an electrosurgical burn and 54% knew of a colleague who had a patient with an electrosurgical injury. Some interesting numbers. You know, how does this happen? During laparoscopic surgery, stray current generated from the electrosurgical instrument can be transmitted to other nearby conductors and ultimately to patient tissue in, in some of these ways. Now, the top reason is due to insulation failure of the instrument. Well, that's interesting. Sounds like something that we can help out with. Now, when I was looking through uh, some other uh, articles, I found these two papers. Now, the first is Surgical Energy Device Injuries and Fatalities Reported to the Food and Drug Administration. Now, I'm just I'm not going to read the whole article. I'm just going to read the abstract. This is going to give us a lot of the key information here. So the abstract starts with the background, and it says energy-based devices are used in virtually every operation. The purpose of this article is to describe the causes of energy-based device complications leading to injury or death, and to determine if common mechanisms leading to injury or death can be identified. Now the study designed the FDA manufacturer and user facility device experience, the MOD, database was searched for surgical energy-based device injuries and deaths that were reported over a 20-year period. Now the device-related complications were reported and analyzed, and the results were 
178 deaths, and 3,553 injuries. Common patterns of complication were thermal burns, were 63%, hemorrhage, 17%, mechanical failure of devices, 12%, and fire, 8%. Events were identified intraoperatively in 82% of the cases, inpatient postoperatively in 9%, and after discharge, 9%. Of the deaths, 12% occurred after discharge to their home. Common mechanisms for thermal burn injuries were direct application, 30%, dispersive electrode burns, 29%, and insulation failure, 14%. Thermal injury was the most common reason for the deaths, 39%. The mechanisms for these thermal injuries was most frequently direct application, 84%. Fires were the most common with the Bovee instrument, 88%, when they were used in head and neck operations. Now the conclusions in the article, complications due to energy-based devices occur from four main reasons, thermal burns, hemorrhage, medical failures, and fire. Thermal direct application injuries are the most common reason for both injuries and deaths. Now the second article I looked at, monopolar electrosurgery through single-site laparoscopy, a potential hidden hazard for bowel burns. Now the abstract, again, I'm just going to read the abstract here. Now the background for this article, surveys indicate that up to 90% of general surgeons and gynecologists use monopolar radiofrequency during laparoscopy and 18% have experienced visceral burns. Monopolar electrosurgery compared with other energy sources is associated with unique characteristics and inherent risk and complications caused by inadvertent direct or capacitive coupling or insulation failure of the instruments. These dangers become particularly important with the emergence of single port laparoscopy which requires close proximity and crossing of multiple instruments intra-abdominally outside the surgeon's field of view. Now the study objectives were to determine the effects of monopolar electrosurgery on various tissues and organs during simulated single port laparoscopic surgery in vitro and in vivo. Now this was a simulation in a dry laboratory with multiple animals at a university teaching hospital. Now they used two different electrosurgical generators that clinically used power outputs of 40 and 60 watts, both high and low voltage, which is coagulation and cut waveforms. The effects on the tissue was recorded by pictures and videos and graded visually. During the activation of the standard monopolar laparoscopic instrument, which is scissors, coagulating electrodes. The results were invisible tissue burns, blanching, caused by adjacent cold instrument graspers, including metallic suction irrigators, cannulas, and the laparoscope itself were all noted. A histopathological study confirmed transmural thermal damage extending to the mucosa of the small bowel, 
With prolonged activation of the electrosurgical generator, there were burns, discharge from insulation, and caused rapid insulation breakdown of the electrode instrument, resulting in coupling, which is uh, sparking and arcing, and more severe burning to the contacted tissue and organs. Now, in conclusions of this article, during the single port laparoscopy and use of monopolar radio frequency, the proximity and crossing of multiple instruments generate capacitive or direct couple of currents which may cause visceral burns. So again, really important to check our laparoscopic instruments. And then I have one more story for you. And uh, this is a news article that has a patient experience with it. And the article is titled, Popular Surgeries Can Carry Risk of Being Burned. Experts say stray energy injuries are more common than healthcare professionals realize. So this article starts off with a story. The registered nurse was trying to get pregnant for a second time, but endometriosis was making it difficult. So she underwent a routine 20-minute minimally invasive procedure known as laparoscopic surgery. She says, I was trying to clear lesions from my abdominal cavity around my ovaries to reduce pain and hopefully get me pregnant. She says that she never felt quite right after the procedure. And a couple of weeks into her recovery, her abdominal pain became so bad she was rushed to the hospital. Her, name, her last name is Hoover. Hoover said she had never experienced anything like it, and she had had natural childbirth. Doctors discovered that she had a life-threatening infection in her bowels because her bowels had, had ruptured. She says, I was so sick at times I didn't think I was going to make it. Hoover survived, but only after several surgeries and weeks in the hospital. Now, she is one of thousands of patients who have been injured by something called stray energy. Stray electricity from the device that was used ended up damaging her bowels. Now, an investigation found that the medical devices used during many minimally invasive procedures can, in rare occasions, burn internal organs and tissues of the patient. Procedures performed millions of times a year uh, for everything from hernia repair to organ removal. The surgeon doesn't know it, the patient doesn't know it, and all of a sudden, the patient gets very sick. So I'm going to stop for a second because this statement kind of concerns me a little bit. And the statement is, the surgeon doesn't know it. You know, this scares me. I think it should probably also scare you. You know, we have to perform insulation testing because when things go wrong, you know, we might not even know until it's too late. You know, in some cases, the surgeon doesn't even know that the patient got burned. Right. And so here we have the registered nurse who had no idea until, you know, weeks after her procedure that she had a burn due to, you know, probably some sort of failure in the instrumentation. That's really scary. So the article goes on to say during laparoscopic surgery, doctors insert long electrical instruments through small incisions in the body and perform surgery with the help of a tiny video camera. Well, that's kind of how you do it, but not the greatest of descriptions. Now it goes on to say that usually everything goes smoothly, but sometimes the energy escapes the device 
burns the patient, burns organs and healthy tissue, which can cause serious injury or even death. Now, in her case, a doctor described the damage in her abdomen as if somebody had threw a little miniature grenade or something in there. It looked like there was part of a bowel that had just basically blown up. She goes on to say that I feel lucky that I'm alive because it easily could have gone the other way. She says, I think I was very close to that happening. Stray energy injuries can happen in several ways. A doctor could accidentally touch the wrong part of the body with the electrical device. Electricity can jump from one instrument to another, or the energy can stray from the tool to the patient's body. There can be energy that goes out of the insulation and hits the organs or tissues or blood vessels. In another study, insulation defects were found in 39% of devices and even some of those devices were brand new instruments. The concern here is that many doctors don't know the dangers of these surgical instruments. We asked some of the most prominent chiefs of surgery around the country to answer a couple of questions about these things, and they saw that at most they got about half the questions right, which means that some of the surgeons don't even know that this is a possibility or that in sterile processing, our, one of our jobs is to check for insulation defects. So in this report, uh, they also discussed the problem with the FDA, the problem of stray energy injuries, but they declined to answer the interview. Instead, they put out a statement that they receive reports of stray energy injuries and they routinely monitor the, and review reports to determine action if necessary. Now, Huber goes on to say, I don't think they're taking this seriously enough. You know, she continues to suffer with symptoms from her injury. She says she has a lot of pain when she eats. She never knows when it's coming. The fear of waiting for problems to strike is exhausting. It takes away from her family life and it takes away from her kids and it is extremely terrible for her. She wants the industry to do more to prevent the same type of injuries from happening to even more people. There's a morally right thing to do, which is to make sure these devices are safe and in fact that there's a way to do that that's not being used makes her sick. You know, personally, this is a, this is a really sad story, but I think the challenge for us here in sterile processing is to perform insulation testing every time on every instrument for every set. You know, what does this look like in your department? You know, how are you handling insulation testing in your department? You know, how would you rank yourself on a scale of one to 10? If you're on the lower end of that scale, what changes do you need to make? Do you need more testing devices? Do you need more education? Do you need more instrumentation so you can process them? You know, what is it going to take to reduce the chances of harming our patients? So uh, just something to think about electrosurgical instruments and then also something to think about in, when it comes to water quality and how we're testing and measuring those things.
Well, we're out of time for today, but I do have one last thought. And it's that these issues could just as easily happen in your facility. You know, now is the time to act. Now is the time to examine your processes in your facility. Now is the time to identify and correct the issue. Don't just sweep them under the rug. Right? Identify the issues and start making preparations to correct those issues. Protect your patients. Protect your department. HSPA episode number 65 is in the books. Thanks for listening to the show. To receive the CE for this episode, simply click on the link in the episode notes, log on to the MyHSPA website, and make sure to use the code PATIENTSAFETY. Again, the code for this episode is PATIENTSAFETY. Remember, keep an ear out for the next episode, always on the 1st and 15th of every month. Each episode's on demand, so when you're ready for us, we'll be there for you. And as always, stay classy, and we'll see you next time.